Father God, we love you. And we desire as a, a body of believers in Kingsgate and uh, from the surrounding parts of the greater Seattle area, Father God, to glorify and exalt your name by hearing your word and receiving it with gladness. And as we look through texts, even difficult texts that are, that are hard or heavy, Father, I pray that you would be gracious to myself, help me only speak what is in the word, and that you be gracious to everyone who hears, Father God, myself included, um, that we would embrace your truth with joy and gladness, Father God, and that your words would ignite a fire in us, Father God, to pursue your glory in this world for the joy of your people. I ask this in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. Well, today we are continuing our um, series. We've been for the last few weeks in a series on the church, and we've been looking at the different ways that God in um, the course of Scripture describes or depicts the church of God. What is the church to God, what does it look like? And last week we looked at something called the work of ministry. That's what Paul uses in Ephesians 4 to describe the, the building up of the body of Christ, the church. Um, and this isn't adding people numerically primarily. This is the edification, the, the um, equipping of fellow believers through the church itself. It's the job of, of really every Christian. Every Christian is, is called by God to use their unique gifts, what God has given them, specific abilities that they have to love and care for the other people that are in the body of, of Christ by effectively pointing them to the beauty and worth of Jesus, constantly bringing people back to Jesus Christ. And Paul referred to this as speaking the truth in love. This is what we are called to do as the church to each other, speak the truth in love. And so we're going to look at this from another angle, using another word picture, and zero in really on why this is so critical for the church to embrace and get. And the word picture that we're going to look at today, we, we saw the first week, family was the, the, the focus. The second week, we looked at the bride of Christ. The word bride is used to describe the church. And the third week, we looked at the body of Christ, why the word body is used to describe the church. This week, we're going to look at something else. We're going to look at the church as a house, as a house. In Scripture, the church is described as a house, a, a structure, a building. Not a building we go into to worship, but rather it is the church. The house is the church. All of us comprise the church, the house of God. And what I want to do initially is just survey two passages briefly and then dive into one specific text that we'll camp out in. And uh, these two passages should help us calibrate and then we'll get into the main text. So let me read the first one here. This is Ephesians 2, starting in verse 17. It says this, And he, and that is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then there's 1 Peter 2, starting with verse 4. Listen to this text here. As you come to him, again, Jesus is in view here, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in both these passages, the church is depicted as a house, using some of the same language, if you were here last week, that we saw with the body, this built up and joined together. Both these passages are describing the same thing. Christ, Jesus, who was rejected by men, is the the very cornerstone of this house. He is the the cornerstone, the anchor of this house. And then the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And then we, if you trust in Christ Jesus and are part of the church, all of us are living stones in this structure. We are are built up as a spiritual house. And Paul refers to it actually even as a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is how the church is depicted in the Bible. A house, a structure, a building, which is comprised of the people of God. And those people are like brick and mortar and rooms and walls. They're the house. So I think on the surface of this, these two passages and just the concept of the church being the house, there's two immediate implications that are very clear. The first is this. The church is all one structure. They are all one structure. It's one building. We're not a subdivision We're not an apartment complex. We're not a a series of structures that are connected with each other. That kind of concept could have been illustrated here. But God, through the inspired writers, used a house, one unified building, one structure, not several, one. And houses have different parts, but all of those parts comprise one house, which takes us to our, our next implication that I think we can draw from this, and that's this. Why is this house here? Why, why does uh, Paul and Peter, why do they tell us that this house exists? And they're really clear, this house is for God. It's a dwelling place for God. It is a spiritual house, a house of, of worship that is being made to be dwelt by God through the Spirit. That's why the house is here. Peter says we are to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. And those sacrifices, if we were to look in Romans 12, are lives, living sacrifices, lives that exist for the glory of God and the joy of his people. So the main reason this house analogy exists is that central to the purpose of the church, this body of believers, in every age, at every time, throughout history, is to be a house of worship, us, Not for us to gather in one, but for us to be a holy temple. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time as we get to this text that we're about to camp out is just answer the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the house of God? What does that look like for us to be all these different parts of a single house? And how does Scripture describe that? And to answer that question, I want us to turn to, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Hebrews 3 verse 1. Hebrews 3, verse 1. 
And again, the question that I think should dominate our thoughts as we look at this text is, what does Scripture tell us it means to be the house of God? What is God calling us into? Hebrews 3 verse 1 begins like this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so just before this, this is the beginning of chapter 3, just before this, the author of Hebrews in the previous chapter has in view the, the priesthood, the priestly service, the priestly act of Jesus Christ, who, who made propitiation for the sins of his people. That's what chapter 2 ends on. Jesus atoned for their sin on the cross, and he did this by standing in our place, receiving our punishment, receiving the wrath of God as it was poured out on him to take it for our sake so that we would be atoned for, that we would be forgiven and that he would create in that act of grace and love a house. And then the author pivots and says here, therefore, holy brothers, people who have been sanctified by God, in other words, people who have been set apart by God for the purpose of this house and share in the heavenly calling, consider, he says, Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus, the author is saying. He's talking right to the church, the body of Christ. He's talking to the house of God. And he's telling them, I want you to consider Christ. I want you to consider the apostle and high priest of your confession. And then the author of Hebrews does something that if you've read the book of Hebrews, you've seen him do multiple times through this book, is he compares Jesus to someone else. He shows how Jesus is superior to everyone who came before him in so many ways. And he does here in chapter 3, to someone who has massive significance in both the Christian faith and the Hebrew faith, and that's Moses. He says, Jesus was faithful to God, just like Moses was faithful to God. But they're different. They function differently. In fact, they are radically different in one key way. Jesus has been counted of worthy than, of more glory. He's been counted worthy of more glory. Now, what does that mean, to be counted worthy of more glory and honor? Well, he explains this. Jesus is counted of more glory, or worthy of more glory because Jesus isn't just part of the house. Moses was part of the house. Jesus isn't that. Jesus is more than just part of the house. He is the builder of the house. He isn't just a stone lodged into this structure in some random spot or some other spot. He's the builder of this structure, and this is the same fact that is hinted at when, he, when, we dis, when um, this, the author describes Jesus, or Peter and Paul, as the cornerstone of this house. Every other stone in the house can be traded out, changed, swapped out for something different, no matter how important it is, but the cornerstone is the main stone. It is the central stone. All the rest of the stones go on the cornerstone. It can't be changed. They lean on and rely on and depend on the cornerstone. 
as not only as the most critical part of the foundation, like this is what everything rests on, but also to define what the structure looks like. The cornerstone sets up, frames up, shows what the house will look like. And the author continues by saying that in verse 4, the builder of everything is God, including this house. And by doing this, he is likening Jesus in a way that he can't do with Moses to God the Father. And we see this continue in verse 5 and 6. Listen to what he says here. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in this comparison of, of Moses and Jesus, the reason that Jesus is worthy of more glory, the reason he's the builder of the house is because he isn't just a servant of God. He is the son of God. He is God the son. He is likened to God here. This is why Jesus is worthy of more honor. This is why he's worthy of more glory. His faithfulness is infinitely more significant than anybody else's faithfulness in this. He wasn't a man like Moses, a servant in this house. He was the builder of the house. And then the author tells us something stunning here, which we've already talked about briefly. We are his house. We are the house of God. If, he says, indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If we hold fast, he says. Which, if I'm honest with you, is a bit of a scary line to read. Because is he saying, does that mean like there's a possibility that I'm not going to hold fast, that I'm not going to be part of this house? And before we really sink into answering that question, what I want to do is I want to I continue to read verses 7 through 11 because he's going to up the ante. He's going to make it even more serious, more heavy, and in some ways more scary. So let's read this passage. I want to understand what he's talking about here when he says we should hold fast to our confidence. Verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and he's, he's going to be quoting uh, Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, the voice of God, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So this is pulled from Psalm 95. This is a, a psalm that was written about an event that happened with Moses as he was leading the people through the wilderness. And it's obviously very relevant because the author of Hebrews has just been comparing Jesus to Moses. And here in this passage, God is pleading. He is pleading with his people not to harden their hearts as the Israelites did in the wilderness during the rebellion when they were being tested by God. They were going through a season of testing by God in the wilderness. And yet, in the end, they were actually testing God's patience and mercy and grace because he had already been loving them for 40 years, every day. 
caring for them. Until finally, it says here, God said, enough is enough. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And God responds to them in verse 11 with, with wrath. God is angry. He, he refuses to be treated like garbage. He's God. And he swears here that they will not enter his rest, his Sabbath rest. This is a reference to what we see in Genesis, the Sabbath rest that God enters into, which is another way of describing his eternal kingdom. It's another way of describing a rest that we experience in the presence of God that is unparalleled in reality. There's nothing like it. It is joy in his presence forever. And he's saying they're not going to enter it. That's heavy. And what makes this heavier is that the author of Hebrews feels like this warning is applicable to the church. He's not addressing the world here. This is not an evangelistic statement. This is a letter to a church. We are his house. God's redeemed people only, according to this passage, if we hold fast our confidence to the end, which is exactly what the Israelites did not do here, tragically. And the result here is not a, a stern word. It is not a, a light spanking. It's being cut off completely from God. It is conscious and permanent separation from the only true source of joy in the universe. So why is it that the author of Hebrews is talking to Christians like this. Why, why, is he, why is he using this language? I mean, he called us holy brothers, holy sisters, people set apart for God, sharing in a heavenly calling. My question when I get to a passage like this is, how does this work? Why is he talking to the church like this? Well, he explains in verse 12 and 14 um, with, very much, uh, with very clear language. He says, take care, brothers, lest there or take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you, he's still talking to the church, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So his reading, I think if we were to ask him, who he is here, whoever the author of Hebrews was, if we were to ask him, what's the reason for you to use this language? He would say, I'm warning you, I don't want you to fail to enter the rest of God. He would say, I don't want you to have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from God. I don't want that for you. That's what he, I think, would be saying to us right now. The author does not want us to fall away. He doesn't want us to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He wants us to hold our original confidence firm all the way to the end. And the reason he's telling us here is because there's a real possibility that someone who is in a church context who's tasted something of God's presence in the church could be hardened and could fall away. I mean, Hebrews 6 tells us the same thing. Hebrews 10 has similar language. This isn't in the author of Hebrews' mind a hypothetical thought exercise. 
He's talking about a real situation, a real fight, a real battle in the church for people not to fall away. And at this point, the question might be raised, is it really possible for someone who is really part of the house of God, really a Christian, really a believing person who trusts in Jesus to fall away in the end? Is that possible to happen? And I believe scripture answers this repeatedly in many, many different ways. I'm going to give you three of them. I could list 20. Philippians 1.6, Paul says to the church, and I am sure of this, I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is sure that that's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says to the church, you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And even the doxology that we have every week is from the book of Jude, very last bit of the book of Jude, Jude 1, 24. Now to him, to God and to Christ Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And then there's Romans 8, Ephesians 1, John 10, which we'll be getting into as we go into the book of John, God willing, next year. They are everywhere, passages just like these. And the Bible speaks very clearly, God loves and preserves his people to the very end. And he does it through his own sovereign power and greatness. So what in the world is the deal with this passage in Hebrews? How are we supposed to understand this passage? I think the author has already provided us, well, in the book, there are many different ways we could answer this. That's another sermon. The author has already provided us with answers in verse 6 and verse 14. He says in verse 6, we are his house. And in verse 14, he says, we have come to share in Christ. Both of those in the Greek are present tense. They are not future tense. They are not an expectation waiting to be seen. They are present tense. He doesn't say we will become the house of God. And nor does he say we will eventually share in Christ. These are present tense realities. And the reason that this is important, the reason that this is critical to understand is that your holding confidence to the end doesn't make you the house of God. It is the evidence that you are his house. It is the proof that you are who you say you are if you, if you proclaim to be a Christian. Our place in the house of God is by Christ's work alone as builder. That's all of what that, the beginning of this passage is setting up. He's the cornerstone. He's the builder of this house. He made this house. It's not by anything we bring to the table. And therefore, all those who are in this house, I mean really in this house, will hold fast to the end. It's going to happen. But how does this work? I mean, the if clause in verse 6 and verse 14, those aren't accidents. 
like the weight of those passages when they come to a church and they're heard by the church, they're not accidents to exist. They are, there's really an if clause here. The author's not saying, hey, listen, don't, I know you're a Christian. You, you can just not worry about this. This part is just for the unbelievers. That's not a distinction he's making here. He actually is saying, if you don't hold con- your, your confidence to the very end, you're going to prove that you're not part of this house, and I want you to be part of this house. I don't want you to be cut off from God forever. I don't want you to fall away from him. I want you to enter into his rest. And so this is a, a real grave warning for the church, and the author is desiring that it has its intended result, the intended effect, and that, namely, the command to hold fast, the, the imperative to hold fast until the end would be our life's goal. We would make it our life to hold on to Jesus, not in a way to earn anything from him, not to merit anything from him, but as an outworking of a reality that Christ has already done in our own hearts, that he's already secured on the cross for his people. The command here is the very means, it's the instrumentation God uses to bring this reality to bear on the church, to bring the church into his rest. This command, commands like these, to press us into holding our confidence to the end are how God brings people home. It's not a magic trick. It's not some sort of automated event that happens. God's power, his grace, is exerted in the heart of a believer to cause the the Christian to hold fast. So when this warning hits us, a person who is in the house of God, a person who belongs to God, hears this warning and says, I never, ever, 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 ever want to fall away from him. I want to hold him forever. That's what the house will say about God. Because God to people in the house is their treasure. God is everything to them. It would be unthinkable to someone in the house of God to be cast out or to, be, to fall away from and be cut off from the living God. That is something they can't afford no matter what the cost. And therefore, they hold fast. By the power of God in them, they hold fast. The author of Hebrews is really clear that Christians, true Christians, will always hold fast. They will hold fast to the end. They won't fall away, and they will enter in God's rest. God will not let go of them. They will not let go of God. Verse 13 and 14 say this. This is how he says we are to do this. This is how he says we are to make sure this happens. But exhort one another every day, he says. Want to hold fast to the end, church? Here's how. Step one. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The answer to the question, how is it that we should hold fast, is exhort one another every day. Make this your daily activity. This, the author of Hebrews says, is how God prevents his people from falling away and stumbling. This is how we hold on. Exhortation, an emphatic plea from one person to another to do something, to continue to do something, to persist in something. 
And he's not saying that this is a job that only pastors have. This is what, job, this is what pastors do. He's not saying that at all. He's saying this is for everyone in the church. Everyone in the church is invited into this. This is, this is the job of a Christian to exhort one another every day. And not just on Sundays or Wednesdays or Saturdays. Every day, as long as it is called today, and I take that to mean to the end of time when we stop calling things today. Every day. That's a very tall order. But what he's describing here, to be very clear about it, is what we looked at last week. This is a picture of the work of ministry that we saw from Ephesians 4. It is the work of ministry in our daily lives. Um, last Sunday, we looked at, at what it was to speak in, in, in love, speak truth in love to people. And this is what that is. This is the manifestation of, it is, of what it is. To exhort, to encourage to, to fight for each other. And this is how believers hold fast to their original confidence to the end. It isn't, it isn't an automated, passive experience being a Christian. That's not how the Bible describes it. It is a battle that we fight side by side. Paul calls it the good fight of faith in his letters to Timothy. And in Acts 20, we see him call it, and this is used by Hebrews actually in Hebrews 12, running the race set before us. And Philippians 3 describes it as pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. This isn't passive language. This isn't sit back and relax. This is strive, fight alongside each other to get each other home. And this is what it means to be the house of God. It is to be deeply rooted in the grace of God, knowing that nothing in me is causing any good to come about. It's all God doing it, deeply rooted in his grace and always straining for his glory. And it's a fight that we fight together. And, and just to underscore the stakes involved, before we shift and look at some of the great hope that's in this passage, just to underscore the stakes involved, I, I feel constrained to show you the author's final plea here at the beginning of chapter one, verse, or chapter four, verse one. Um, this is his last-ditch effort to get us to stay on course. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering God's Sabbath rest still stands, let us fear, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, the church, just as it came to them, the Israelites, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He says, let us fear, which is heavy, lest any of us should seem to fail to reach this. So in the author of Hebrews' mind, this is not not a game. This is not something that he wants to, us to take lightly. He wants to take this, us to take it seriously like a life or death situation, except life and death here last for all eternity. And so I'm going to join him in his plea as we sort of transition and look at some of the great, amazing realities of this. Um, as someone who loves you and who wants to be with you forever, there is a way that someone can hear the good news, the gospel. There's a way that someone can hear it. 
and they can agree with it intellectually. And they can even agree with it emotionally. And maybe at some level, they assent to it spiritually. Yet they still fail to enter God's rest, according to the author of Hebrews here. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, what does he mean here? What does it mean to fail to listen? What kind of faith is this? What is it that they and we need to listen to? And he tells us right here, the good news. The good news. That's what we hold on to to the very end. That's what our confidence is rooted in. It's in the good news. That's the, uh, the boasting of our hope that he mentioned earlier, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. For us, that's what that is. That's the good news that we have, the gospel. What carries us through to the end isn't anything that we've done. It's everything that he's done, everything that he's done on our behalf. And in this simple act of exhorting one another to contemplate, think, receive, trust in, believe in, hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day, the author says that prevents the hardening of our hearts due to sin, that prevents deceitfulness of sin to have its way, and that is how God gets his people home. God doesn't just snap his fingers or he would have done it already. He calls us to exhort each other one, every, one another every day. That's the way that he prevents his people from falling away, by speaking, by God speaking the truth through someone to us. So don't get this wrong. God sovereignly preserves his people. He does it. He's going to make it happen. It will happen for certain, but it's going to happen through words that are in the mouths of real believers who love you and through your mouth for other believers. That's how he does it. So I want to get practical for just one moment, and then I want to pull back and really invite you to look at how glorious and how awesome this really is. If we really want to think about how, how amazing it is that God has designed it like this. Um, but first, practicality. What are the practical implications of this? Does the description that Hebrews 3.14 shows us reflect what goes on in our lives right now? Does that describe what goes on in our hearts? Does it describe what goes on in our, our attitudes? Um, do we regularly meet with people and exhort them and encourage them? Do we um, check in with folks who are going through something tough or maybe not just to see, are you going through something difficult? Are we in relationships that can deal with real life things? And I'm thinking in my mind, uh, just intimate, tight-knit groups where intimacy and transparency happen. They can happen. Are we walking with each other through the word? And I'm not talking about the Bible studies we do. We do Bible studies and they're amazing and I love them. I'm talking about on our own. Are we likely saying, you and you, I want to meet with you and have coffee and read the word with you. I want to walk through this book with you. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. And we've been blessed in a church context, really, because we're small. Praise God. We've been blessed with a church context that makes this immediate and real in ways that it otherwise wouldn't be. Um, and uh, 
especially given the technology we have. I mean, we have text messaging, we have mail. I mean, I've never used, I've never said text messaging, I think, in a sermon. So this, you understand, this is very practical. <laughs> I never get to this part. Slack, we have all these different ways of being able to communicate with one another. And these are ways that can be used with regularity to love and care for, edify and, and encourage people who we know, people who we love in this community. And so this is possible. This is a real possibility this week for us to do this, to make this a goal f- for our lives. And so what I'm asking really is, is this, how, what will it take for us? What, like, what does it look like for us to make verse 13 a reality? Like make verse 13 a reality in this passage. Joining up arm in arm with people, meeting with them, having real conversations with them, people who I'm, I'm going to walk through even difficult, sometimes ugly things because I want to be encouraged and I want them to be encouraged. I want us to exhort one another every day and fight alongside them. This is possible. And I know that we all have busy schedules. I know that. I know that we have, I know that the idea for some people of being intimate and communicating hard things or even things that are personal is extremely uncomfortable and challenging. But here's the deal. God is still on his throne. Jesus is still the one who built this structure. And if and when it happens through you, it happens by the grace of God alone. It happens because God, through Christ, in your heart and mouth, are speaking, is speaking into the life of somebody else. That's how it happens. It happens by his grace or it doesn't happen at all, if I'm honest with you. Which doesn't remove the responsibility that we have as believers to do this, but it simply shows us that God is the reason underneath every impulse we have to do this, that it happens. Um, and this is where I want to reflect in closing. We, we talked about the waiting necessity of holding firm to the end Without it, there is no rest. I mean, the author of Hebrews has made it clear here, this isn't a game, this isn't something we should take lightly. But I, I want us just to, for a moment, consider what this means for the church, what it means for us as the church to be the house of God, to do this. The author of Hebrews, even in stating things in a very, very stern and grave way, is inviting us into something that is staggering to consider. And I want you to consider this. I want you to feel the weight of this. This is glorious. In the act of, the simple act of exhorting one another, encouraging one another, something unprecedented is happening. In that moment, you and I, when we do that, are becoming the very means by which God brings his people home. We're becoming that. We are instruments in his hand. We become his hands and his arms, and we carry one another, each of us, home to him by his grace, by his power. That's what's happening. This isn't a small thing. It may seem small to you, like I sent a text message, I'm praying for you, and then pray for the person. It may seem small. It is an awesome thing an awesome thing that our role, all of our roles in this church, in the life of a church, is to, by God's grace and strength, 
bring the church into the Sabbath rest. That's what this passage is telling us, that leading people to Christ through, through for example, the act of witnessing. Like, I, you know, someone says, I witnessed somebody, I led them to Christ. Phrases, a parlance in Christianity, I led them to Christ. As decisive as that one moment is, as decisive as that one moment is, and I know a lot of you pray for that opportunity in your daily lives. I wish I could just talk to them about Jesus. I, I want you to continue to do that, but leading someone to Christ is not just a one-time event, as decisive as that moment is. Leading someone to Christ is a lifelong pursuit, and it's what the church does as the house. Our voices, when we encourage and exhort one another, are voices that literally, I mean, it's amazing that God did it this way. He could have done it anyway. Our voices, by his power and grace, carry other people into eternity. That is not a small thing. That is not a small thing. There is literally nothing trivial about the Christian life. There is nothing. Every word of encouragement you give to somebody else has infinite value. No matter how simple or meaningless it may seem to you in the moment. Because when this exhortation is really happening, when we are really doing what the author of Hebrews says we need to do, these words, these encouragements, anchor us very deeply into the confidence that Jesus is really as good as the gospel says he is. He really is that good. And this is exactly what, if you remember back to those first two passages we looked at, Peter and Paul, when they're talking about the house, this is what they're talking about. This is what they're speaking about. That through the act of exhortation, Christ is in, our, in his own house building a temple for God to dwell in. He is building it one brick at a time, strengthening each brick with every word of encouragement, making it sure and steadfast for all eternity. That's what he's doing. In our lives, when we are encouraging one another, are the very work of God to build a temple in which he will dwell in forever. That's what it is. For his glory and for our joy, this is an awesome thing. Which brings me to the final thing I want to consider with you today. The author of Hebrews opened chapter 3 with a look at Jesus Christ, if you remember, those first few verses. And he tells the believers, the church, those who share in the heavenly calling, two words. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And this is critical because the author of Hebrews is, is modeling what he's inviting us into. He is exhorting us. Consider Jesus is an exhortation. He's modeling the very thing that he's calling us into to exhort and to encourage. And he's doing it by saying, consider Jesus, the builder of this house that you belong to. He's the builder. And so in a few moments, we're going to participate in communion, the Lord's Supper. And as we do that, if your faith is in Christ, you are invited to come and participate, take the elements. Um, and I would ask that as you do, consider Jesus. Before you exhort anyone, consider Jesus. 
the apostle and high priest of your confession because he is the one who built this house. You're in it because of him. You're able to exhort because of him. He's the reason. Ephesians 2 says that we are God's workmanship. That's actually 1 Corinthians 1. And Ephesians 2 says all of our works, our good works, were prepared beforehand by him. Um, He's done this. This is what he's done. We are living stones in the hands of God. And so we don't, when we look to encourage somebody else, we don't look in ourselves and say, you know what? I'm going to just encourage you. We don't look into ourselves. We plead with Jesus and we ask him, we consider Jesus and say, what is it I can say to my brother? What is it I can say to my sister that will show them God's love for them right now? That will so anchor them into the gospel that they cannot be moved. And Christ will supply us with every good resolve, every good intention. And so as we take communion, as we worship here over the next few few minutes, join me in pleading with God for him to give us hearts that desire to do this, for, for him to give us willingness and the strength and the energy to actually communicate these words of exhortation and to consider Christ whenever we do this, that he might grant us everything we need to make verse 13 a reality in our lives. It's so critical, so important, so much weight put on it, but it comes from God alone. This is God's work alone. And so let's pray to this end. Heavenly Father, your word is such a massive reality that you've spoken to us through time and space and given us a book that displays not only the heavy and hard things for us to hear, but the glorious and beautiful things that we need to hear Both of those things are necessary in our hearts and our lives. And my prayer, Father God, is that you would speak clearly now in the hearts and lives of your people, not words of simply um, communicating facts, Father God, but get deep into our souls, my soul especially, and grant us that we would have desires and affections and impulses in our soul to exhort one another every day as long as we can still call it day so that we will all, all of us, will hold firm our confidence to the end, Father God. That you would sovereignly weave into your church a culture of exhortation, a desire to every day make it our effort to point people to Jesus to tell them to consider Christ because it is only through him as the cornerstone and as the builder that this house is built and that this house remains. Help us to do this, Father God. I love these people. I'm grateful for them. Help us join you in the great work you have of bringing one another home to you so that we might enter the Sabbath Sabbath rest and be with you forever, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.